have your Bibles, please turn to the second chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever really feels it enough inside shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's not what the text says, is it? And why do so many of us often live like that? How many of us find our assurance or our hope for our salvation in our feelings? How many of us wait on experiences from God to feel His presence or His Holy Spirit so that then we'll know we're close to Him and He's close to us and He loves us. It's like everything Jesus promised in our minds depends on us. And I would propose that this type of belief is at the center of the church's increasing ineffectiveness in our time and place. We are in some ways always the products of our culture. We're always um, the product of the things that came before us. Church history is a very interesting thing to study. It's very helpful. It's not always good, but it's always helpful and important. There were schools of thought coming to a head in the 19th century, really during the Second Great Awakening in America, that continued to shape and influence Christian culture even today where we live. The Enlightenment, uh, the Puritans and their theology, then later on, fundamentalism, then the seeker-sensitive movement, really, of the 80s and 90s. And, and these movements have, have come together. I don't mean that really as an insult. Like, I don't want you to turn me off because you were a part of those things or remember those things. So was I. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm hoping that you'll consider greatly what I'm saying. The, these movements have coalesced to create the Christian culture of which you and I are a part. And these can be summarized. A, a man named Brian Wolfmuller talks about these by really four main schools of thought. If you can just bear with me here at the beginning for just a few extra minutes here. There's revivalism. These are isms. Revivalism is the theology that my Christian life begins when I make a decision for Christ. This really comes from Charles Finney, the great evangelist of the Second Great Awakening, and he created what he called the anxious bench. That's what we became, what we know as the altar call, which was really about until 150, 180 years ago, maybe something unheard of in American churches and other churches, but um, Finney believed that since the will was free, we, and we, again, we, we don't really realize how much this has influenced us and shaped us, that since the will was completely free, it could be coerced or manipulated, those are his words, towards a conversion. You could push people, if you sing the right songs, have the right melodies, take enough time, people could be coerced into coming forward. So, what that did, whether he intended it to or not, was create this idea that salvation is cooperation between God and man. So my life in Christ is based on my choice and then as an extension on my dedication to it, which brings about really the second ism or the second school of thought that is influenced called pietism. This comes mainly from the Puritans. The, the, the main thing in my Christian life is growth in good works. That's the main thing. And so Christianity is a little bit of Jesus. It's a little bit of me. You've heard sayings like, 
the acrostic for the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And so what the Bible is mainly is an instruction book for us how to live. It's not a promise book, or at least it's not seen as that. Uh, but the gospel in that ism, the, the gospel, the message of the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners, that's to get people in the door. That's when it's important. That's how you get people in. Then, once you get them saved, then you give people the real stuff so that they can get to work. And so we, Lordship Salvation comes out of this. And the idea that Jesus is your Savior, but you have to make Him your Lord. Or is He your Lord? And you can use that to needle people as though you can get half of Christ. Right? But if you mean it, and you work hard enough and you're serious enough, then you've made Him your Lord. Then there's mysticism, which might be the biggest. I know that's a, a, a strange word, but you find certainty of the things you believe in your inner spiritual life. You can have a direct, immediate experience of God's presence. This isn't just in Christianity. This is Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age movement. That's why we hear the saying so often, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's mysticism. I go by what I feel and I, I am assured on the inside and the presence of God can only be known or is really known, the real stuff, through personal experiences, right? Assurance then comes from the inside. Where we see it really today, where, where it's kind of grown and become this kind of uh, just huge thing, is in modern praise and worship music. And I don't want to uh, speak ill of all of it. There's certainly no need to do that. But really, the idea of it, is to lead people into the presence of God. It's somewhere out there. And if you do music rightly and affect people's hearts in the right way and affect their minds in the right way, you can actually lead them into the presence of God. Chris Tomlin, one of the main uh, worship singers, writers, leaders, uh, today was being interviewed on uh, a podcast. And, and, and he was asked, what do you think the job of a worship leader is? And he said, well, it's to lead people into the presence of God. And the interviewer said, well, how do you know you're in the presence of God. And he thought for a minute and he said, uh, you, you just know. You just know. So we look to experiences in order to have intimate communion with God. So we say things like, I'm in a dry spell right now. I don't feel the presence of God. I don't feel the Spirit when I go to church. I don't feel God moving lately, etc., etc. So our relation to God is based on an internal feeling or sensation, not on God's external promise that comes to us from the outside. Mysticism looks for comfort in the experience of intimacy. And it leads to the entire picture of Christianity being understood in terms of intimacy. We, we have come up with phrases like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you say relationship, you're saying it depends on two parties. And, and that, that language isn't really in Scripture at all. A personal relationship with Christ. That's a newer term. That's newer language. It's an idea uh, nowhere in the Bible, but is, is so persuasive to us because of mysticism and how it's affected us. But the result of looking for comfort in mystical experiences or for growth and good works is that nothing is ever sure or solid. Everything in our relationship with God is always moving around and we're like a pendulum. Pride, despair. Pride, despair. Assurance, happiness, doubt, 
joy. It just, it, it's never solid. I can't be confident that God loves me because some days I feel like He does and other days I don't feel like He does. I can't be confident that God is with me because some days I feel He's close to me and other days I don't feel He's close to me at all. We're unanchored from anything certain. And really, if you wanted to, you could take those three, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and put them under the bigger banner of theological enthusiasm, right? Enthusiasm means you're excited about something, but theological enthusiasm is that anything and everything spiritual happens in the theater of my heart, not on the outside. So theological enthusiasm keeps God from bringing anything to me from the outside that will help me. It it isn't real. It isn't helpful unless I drum it up or feel it on the inside. It isn't real. I can't trust it. That's why we think we have to woo people into the church with an experience. That's why how we become consumer driven to draw people in. We've adapted business models, right? Marketing, strategy, sales. We say things like, if you feel like Jesus is tugging on your heart, you can come. What if you don't feel Jesus tugging on your heart, but you still believe what the pastor said was true? Are you allowed to come or are you not allowed to come unless you feel it tugging, whatever that means, on your heart? It destroys, these ideas destroy the sufficiency of Scripture really of baptism of the Lord's Supper as gifts from God because they're outside of us. So we think that has to be a work that we're doing. We need more. I need something that's real to me. We've even, and I said this just a few weeks ago, without even thinking about it. We even make prayer a two-way conversation between us and God. It's this idea that in prayer we speak to God, but then He speaks back to us if we're really Listening. If we learn how to discern the voice of God in our lives, that's all internal. Right? Spontaneity is just more spiritual. What comes from me is more authentic than what God has said. That's what we believe. As enthusiasts, we're often listening for God to give us something more than what is already ours in the gospel. Something more personal. So I know I'm a believer, not because Scripture says so and I hear the gospel, but because I have this internal word speaking to me all the time. But Tony, if I, if I can't trust myself, who can I trust? Jesus. The word outside of me that doesn't need me to feel it in order for it to be true. I don't feel close to God. So what? What has He promised I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. So it doesn't matter if I feel like he's close to me. He is. I don't really feel forgiven. So what? What has Jesus said? If you believe you are forgiven of your sins, it's final. So it doesn't matter if we feel forgiven. We are. This all stands outside of me. It's true regardless of how I feel. Now, why are all these schools of thought that have been so instrumental in shaping our culture as Christians in America, why are they so dangerous? Because they're not rooted in grace. That's what all this has to do with Ephesians 2, if you're wondering. Much of the Christian air we breathe smells like this. This is what we've, by and large, adopted And it isn't the aroma of Christ for us. Do we fail to truly glorify God 
in Christ? Do we fail to comfort sinners with the gospel? Christ does not fail. He can't. His death and resurrection were not a failure. The effects of them being granted to me have nothing to do with my feelings or my circumstances. They are our life and hope and peace. And where we have and will continue to fall short, He has not. In Ephesians 1, Paul revealed that God's plan for human history was to bring all things together in His Son through the work of redemption. For this, God has made Jesus the head of all things. And as the head of all things... He has been given to those who have been redeemed, sealed, and enlightened by the Holy Spirit that they might be His body in this world. One head, Christ, one body, the church. In Ephesians 2 now, Paul tells us how each one of us were brought into this body. And all this God has done in spite of us, not because of us. And if our Christianity isn't rooted on purpose there, not just in our semantics... We cannot be the church. To fulfill His plan for history, to unite all things in His Son, God brings us into the one body of Christ by grace and by grace alone. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, I ask You for Your anointing. I ask You for Your Holy Spirit to overcome my mind and therefore my mouth to keep me out of this passage and to proclaim what you breathed into it for the sake of those who are your people and those you mean to draw this morning. Help me, O God, to speak. Help everyone to hear and to listen. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Overcome us. Amen. Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if we, when we read in chapter 1 that God is, has, has predestined, right? God has made choices However, we understand that if we were to interpret that as meaning that God's predestining election of his people is God looking down through the portals of time to see what we would do. These verses let us know what he would have seen. And it isn't good. He wouldn't have chosen us because how does the Bible describe those who are lost? And by the way, how should that inform and affect our strategies, our our strategies and expectations for evangelism and Witnessing. Verse 1 says that human beings aren't merely sick in sin. It's not like we're lying on a bed and God has put the medicine on the table and if we just reach out and take it, we'll be okay. We aren't sick. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Evangelism always takes place at a gravesite, in a cemetery. And notice that Paul is describing who Christians used to be, right? Every member of the church was once dead in trespasses and sins and walked in them, which walk is just a biblical word for how we live our lives, followed the course of this world, and knowingly or unknowingly, willingly served Satan, carrying out the desires of the flesh we had on the inside and of our body, and were by nature conceived children of wrath. Every believer you know and I know, including ourselves, was that. And dead people are helpless to escape their deadness. 
Try that. Go to a cemetery and tell everybody to get up. We cannot make ourselves come alive. So the Christian life doesn't start with us at all. Not at all. We are spiritually dead. That's how the Bible describes all of us before Jesus saves us. And in that state, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person by nature does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he, so there's an inability, not just a lack of desire, because they are spiritually discerned. That which is spiritual is foolishness to the natural person. We're dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to our sinful human natures. We cannot see, cannot come, cannot understand, cannot believe. We follow Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He infects everything, even the air we breathe, literally and figuratively in verse 2. The spirit, by the way, that is now at work in the Son's of disobedience. That's another family in the world. And among these, he says, we all once lived, even Paul himself. This used to be us. So if you read that, how in the world does anybody get saved then? How does it happen? Say, well, I I use my my free will and I make a choice. Okay, what, what free will? I know that's extremely offensive. We assume it. I'm not saying you're not free to choose. I'm asking you whether or not in the Bible the human natural will is actually free. Right? And if if you believe it is, then stop sinning. Just stop. Right? Just quit it. Go to McDonald's and get a hot dog if that's what you want to do. But you can't because there's something bigger than you at McDonald's. And that's the fact that they don't have hot dogs. So you can't get one there. Right? So our wills are free unless something is more powerful than they are. Which free, Do we mean the dead free will? That comes alive and we make a choice? Does the Bible describe our wills like that? Does it? We think because God is, is commanding people to choose or to repent that we're free to do that. What if that's law and therefore we can't do that? All it's doing is exposing the fact that we don't want to come to Him. And we need something greater than a good argument or good music or right lighting. Does the Bible describe us as free but just damaged by sin so that it's really hard for us to do well or to choose Christ? Or does it tell us we're dead? So can we decide not to sin apart from Christ? Or are we slaves to sin like Jesus said? Because what is enslaved is not free. By definition. So maybe we need a biblical definition of free will rather than, rather than a revivalistic one or a mystical one. Human brings, beings are free to choose according to their natures. No question. And since we're sinners and children of wrath and disobedience by nature, we will never be able to choose God on our own because we'll never want to. When we hear the gospel with dead ears and blind eyes, it will sound like foolishness. It will sound like a fairy tale to our dead natures. Dead natures can't choose God. We, we think of being free, right, as being able to make the choices we want. If I have the ability to choose, if I have the opportunity to choose between this and that, I'm free. Not if something stronger than our will shapes our desires. 
if we are dead in and enslaved to sin, which is the Bible's description of us, then we aren't free to choose to get ourselves out. Our disposition in the flesh to sin is stronger than our wills. That is spiritual deadness. That's what he means by calling us dead. We can't do anything in that state. If I'm locked in a room, I'm not free. I'm a slave or a prisoner. In John 8:34, Jesus says that everyone who practices sin, that's everyone, is a slave to sin. That's what's happening. We cannot free ourselves. We're conceived in sin, Psalm 51, 5. We're born slaves of sin, Romans 6, 20, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. All we want to do is sin, Genesis 6, 5. We can't change our natures, Jeremiah 13, 23 and 17, 9. We're blind to God in sin, John 3, 3. We can't come to Him. John 6.44, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent him draws us, and draw there is not, just come, come on, come. No, 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 draw is the same word they use for getting water out of a well. Water doesn't do anything to get drawn. It gets drawn. Something happens to it. That's the word. So unless God does something to a sinner, they aren't coming to him. They can't. They're dead. We're hostile to God in our natures. We don't submit to God's law because we literally can't, and therefore we cannot please God. Romans 8, 7, and 8. This is how the Bible describes human beings apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. All people need is the right push? Really? Beloved, we don't take sin and our state in sin seriously enough, which is why we don't take grace seriously enough. Freedom comes only after the Lord Jesus breaks our chains, because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, John eight thirty six. So that's what we bring to the table in salvation, beloved. Nothing but the sin that makes it necessary. We're dead, enslaved, unavoidably disobedient children of wrath. And yet, there's Ephesians 1. There are all these people that are forgiven and saved that actually make up the one body of Christ in this world. How? This text started with two words. And you, so here's what's true of you and I, of those believers in Ephesus to which he's writing. And you... But now come the two most beautiful words maybe in all of Scripture in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, go back for just a moment to verse 5. Do you see what Paul does there? He interrupts himself. I love this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, he's going to say that down in verse 8 anyway. So why does he say it? Here, Why does he interrupt himself here? I think because he wants to be sure that salvation from start to finish is framed in grace and in nothing else. That it comes to us in our deadness. Verses 1 through 3 are there to show us why 
If God doesn't do something supernatural, if God doesn't reach in and save us by grace, no one is going to get saved. No one. Humankind is lost, enslaved, blind, and dead in trespasses and sins, according to Scripture. And yet God has this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in His Son, Jesus Christ. So reconciling sinners to Himself by grace is how God fits sinners into this plan to unite all things in His Son. Redemption. Notice here that God is the subject of all the verbs. That everything we're receiving is with and in Christ, but God. So, and you were this, but God did this. Salvation is the work of God, 100%. It's monergistic, one-sided. He creates faith because God, who is rich in mercy, because God loves us, with great love, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were filled with sin and guilt, rejecting God, unable to see Him, not wanting to, in that state, because of His mercy and love, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That follows out of that first clause. Because that's what it means that God made us alive, that we've been saved by grace. God puts the origin of our salvation then... God puts it not in our decision, which we do make, but in His life-giving work of grace, or we wouldn't have made it. For us to believe, we must be, for us to believe, we must be made alive. Again, if you don't believe me, tell a corpse to come back to life. Dead is the word the Spirit uses. It's a picture of us in our sin. So grace is saving us from start to finish. We think, I think normally, naturally, which is never good, Okay, because it's this in one through three, that God's grace is a response he makes to our wills, right? That we do something, then we get all the grace. You take the first step, God will take the rest, right? How many steps can you take if you're dead? That's not how scripture describes what is actually happening when somebody does respond to the gospel and chooses to place their faith in Jesus. Yes, that does happen, must happen. We choose to believe in Jesus, but have you ever really wondered how? Like, why not make the obvious choice? How is it that you and I chose and other people hear it and don't? Surely we don't think the difference is in us. It's not semantics, or it is semantics, unfortunately. It's Bible. It's because God made us alive, or we would never choose Him. That's how we came. We can't, we won't. We don't make ourselves come alive, and then He meets us, because then you couldn't say, by grace you have been saved. Not technically. You never would have gotten the grace if you didn't come. Well, how did you come? You got grace. Right? By grace we have been saved to the extent, to the extent that it was grace that literally raised us from the dead so that we could believe. To think of what is happening in John chapter 11 is a demonstration of what Jesus taught in John 10, that he knows his sheep by name, he calls them and leads them out, and he gives them eternal life, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. And to prove just how powerful that word is, of Jesus calling out his someone's name in the life-giving word of the gospel, in the very next chapter, he raises a dead man from the dead, 
proving, look, when I speak in this alive-making way, with this word, my word, people come alive and come to me. That's what happens. I am that gracious, that powerful, that saving, that necessary, that good. That's what Lazarus shows. So we need, again, it, it, you can't, we can't just leave it on the periphery. Because the, the periphery affects how we think on a daily basis. We need to frame our decision for Christ in the language of what God did to cause us to make it. Or we're going to speak until we think we did it. God makes us alive. Grace is unearned merit. Grace is not initially God responding to something in us. You wouldn't call that grace. Grace is not the word for a response. That's payment. Grace does not respond. Grace initiates. We think that we're saved by grace because we made a choice. We did make a choice, but we need to know why and we need to believe why. Because if not, we spend our whole Christian lives thinking deep down that all this has always been riding on us. And it shrinks our Christian lives down to something we can control and experience and feel and characterize and dictate. And Which is why we're all so obsessed with trivial things at the expense of God's revealed will for His church. Even when our traditions and desires get in the way of Scripture, we justify that because we don't know how to define our Christian existence apart from the things we do and we love and we care about and that make us feel close to God. Do we realize why we do that and what we're doing when we do that? We lack grace. We can't receive it fully, so we can't give it fully. We can't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We, we can't love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And beloved, we're commanded to do these things. And if we don't start in grace, we aren't going to get there. We made the choice because we were made alive and therefore we're saved by grace. Grace is God granting something to us that we don't possess and therefore can't produce. You cannot export what you don't have. God making us alive is pure grace. He's not responding to me. I'm dead. What could I do? If I'm dead at the very least, that means I can't see and I can't hear. So how in the world can I do something so amazing as to believe in Christ? So I'm saved by grace from initial faith to final salvation. In John 3, Jesus says God's judgment is on us. Because we love the darkness rather than the light. And therefore, we won't come to the light if left to ourselves outside of grace. We won't do it. We don't want to. That's what it means to be dead. We will not come to the light. We'll get exposed. We won't do it. Jesus said human beings go after what they love. That's what their wills are driven by. We love sin. We love ourselves and so we can't love God unless he brings us to life. How does he do it? Through the life-giving word of the gospel that raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a picture of what happens spiritually every time somebody chooses to follow Jesus. God has risen the dead. Right? If someone does come to the light of Christ when Jesus says they won't, then what has happened? Right? 
God made them alive so that they could see, so that they would. He took the scales off their eyes. If he didn't, they wouldn't have come. John 3, 3, what does he say? Nicodemus, you, you, you know how we always say those things like Jesus uh, only called people publicly. No, he didn't. What about Nicodemus? What about the woman at the well? Stop. Right? We just believe these things. Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Salvation is all of grace, even my decision to choose Jesus. I can't even boast or take credit for deciding to come to Jesus. And I shouldn't even speak that way. It was accomplished for me by God in Christ through His Spirit. So when God made me alive together with Him. Now, here's what's amazing in that text. When did God actually do that? When did God ever make Jesus come alive? Made, made Him alive? At the resurrection, right? So when God raised him from the dead in the text, he was raising me from the dead because I was in him. That's confusing, but it's, it's there, right? And when God raised Jesus up and seated him in the heavenly places that we've already seen in 1.3 and 1.20, the Bible says he was seating me with him in the heavenly places. My whole salvation, then, from decision to glorification, actually was purchased and obtained 2,000 years ago in Christ and by Christ and is applied to me in real time when God awakens me so that I believe in His Son. As He will go on to say later about our good works, same thing, we simply walk in the steps that have been taken for us. We were spiritually dead before Christians. Now we're alive spiritually. So, again, this is why I don't beg in invitations. This is why I don't get stressed when people don't come in invitations. This is why I don't barter and I don't push and I don't try to manipulate emotions or smooth the road out. Right? That, that's what we do. Make it as easy as possible. Every head bowed. Every, I just wish we'd say every eye open. Everybody looking around at each other. That'd be so much more true. We're dead in trespasses and sins. It doesn't matter how much you smooth the road out for a car that doesn't have an engine. It isn't driving on it. When I'm finished preaching and give what we call the invitation, all I'm doing is seeing if God has awakened anyone through His life-giving Word. And if the means He uses to bring them in that moment is the altar call, that's fantastic. That's great. But I'm not trying to make anything happen or, or, or to keep it from happening. Even if my sermon stinks, that's not what your soul is riding on. We put way too much stock in our free will at the expense of grace, beloved. Way too much. We need a new term. We're free to choose what we want. Absolutely. But since we're dead in trespasses and sins, we will never choose Jesus unless God brings us to life. So... We need to trust the power of His gospel to raise the dead, not the presentation. Let that comfort you the next time you are telling someone about Christ and hoping they'll believe. It's not on us, beloved. It's all on Him. The success of the church is all on Him. What did Jesus say? I will build my church. You go proclaim my name. There is no greater miracle. He wants to do miracles still exist. 
There is no greater miracle in all creation than the salvation of an unbelieving sinner. It takes the cake. It's so unlikely, it's impossible. And it happens every day because of grace. So as the church, we don't preach with fear that I I hope this all works. Like it's all up to us. That's not what the church is, nor is what the church has been called to. The church is not a group of people where God has said, I did this, now if you do your part, hopefully we'll save more than we don't. Beloved, do we understand how dependent the church is to exist, let alone grow on Jesus Christ? Do we see Paul's strategy here? We are going to think we're doing poorly when the pews aren't lined with people. We're going to think we're doing poorly when hundreds aren't coming down the aisles or down the steps of the stadium. We're going to think we're doing poorly when our country doesn't want anything to do with God anymore. What does the text say we are? How does the text describe the church? How does God say there is nothing inside or outside of us that can hinder or silence the regenerating, life-giving call of God. Jesus didn't ask Lazarus to come forth. He commanded him, and he did. And Jesus set him free. Now, why? Why did God do it this way? Because that seems very specific and very comprehensive. Why in mercy and love does he have to make us alive because we're dead in trespasses and sins? Why did he raise us up with Jesus and seat us with Jesus in those heavenly places Paul keeps talking about. I mean, we know that's where Jesus is, but but in a sense, that's where we are. It's almost like if, if we aren't heavenly minded, we'll be of no earthly good. It's like Jesus did all the work before we had the chance to mess it up. So praise his name. Again, do, do you see what you lose if you push the reign of Jesus out into an unknown point in the future? You lose the assurance of salvation by grace through faith. And what God accomplished in Christ at the cross and the resurrection. Because that's when Jesus was seated at his reigning place. So, no wonder we're disproportionately obsessed with good works and feelings, right? We don't believe Jesus reigns yet. We don't believe our salvation is fully accomplished yet. Why did God do it this way and not another? Well, here's the great thing. He tells us in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The grace he lavished on us all, or lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, if you remember back in 1, 8 and 9. God is so kind. Why is he doing it this way? Well, it's, it's actually very simple. He's so kind that he wants to spend eternity showing us his grace in Jesus Christ. So he's designed the redemption that makes us the church completely one-sided, therefore, in its source and means. Because if he saves another way, even if it's 1% you and 99% grace, then you can't get shown grace for all eternity as though that's what got you there, when in the back of your mind you're saying, well, I mean, I did, you know. Remember, it's so that we would get all the salvation and He would get all the glory. Remember His plan for the fullness of time in 110? Right? He, he, 
We get the grace. He gets the glory. That's the plan. How does God fulfill it for human history? How does He make all this stuff in chapter 1 come true? Grace in chapter 2. Look at 8 and 9. For, ah, so because by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that, so there's another so that, no one may boast. So grace precedes and leads to faith. Where grace goes, faith results in the text. Grace gives faith. We don't have it. If I'm not made alive, I cannot, will not believe. The text reveals here That if faith was something we worked up or found inside ourselves and then gave to God, even it was just the tiniest speck, not only could we boast about it, beloved, we would. And it would ruin the plan that He has to shower His grace on us for all eternity. Well, Tony, I I don't... See, the, the text presumes our boasting as part of the reason for grace. I don't boast about my faith, Tony. Beloved... Of course, we don't brag about it. But you boast if you look to your decision for God as what saved you rather than His decision for you. That's precisely what He's talking about. Looks like God was the one making the decisions first in Ephesians, right? That's how the book started. Ours follows His. So we take credit for nothing, especially not the faith that applies His grace to us. That'd be the last thing we can take credit for. He even gave us that. We, you can't brag about what you don't earn. So must there be faith to be saved? Yes and amen, absolutely. Or you are not saved. The one who believes is saved. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But where are we going to get it if we're dead? He imparts it to us as a gift of grace through the life-giving word of the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith. Pure gift from God to us for one expressed purpose here, expressed in two ways really, but one purpose to exclude boasting. In verse 9, that's what all of this is hinging on. You cannot boast, brag, take confidence in yourself for nothing. Or you ruin the plan. There is nothing more out of place or disgusting in this world than someone who claims to be saved by grace walking around with their nose in the air towards unbelievers. There's nothing more antichrist in the church than boasting. Nothing is more the spirit of the devil here than boasting. Nothing more dead set against the purpose and plan of God for the ages in the church than taking a posture of self-righteous superiority over anybody. And that is what's at stake in whether we focus enough on grace, God's will for the church in the world, and for eternity. Why do we emphasize grace? Because sinners really don't need to act like anything else saves or keeps them. God doesn't want heroes representing Him. He wants beneficiaries and beggars. He doesn't want to receive payments. He wants to give welfare. 
all the church. And again, if you want to know how people really feel about grace, listen to them talk about welfare recipients. You'll get a nice picture of how they look at people that just expect to, to just hope to get something for free. We can cover it in all the political talk we want, but that's grace. We can't stand people that just take. And on a worldly level, we get it. I understand that, right? Not advocating a certain system of government. I'm talking about the essence of an idea. We can't stand it when people just get something. And, and then when they have the gall to use it. You see somebody on food stamps buying a bag of Doritos instead of a bag of protein bars. I didn't pay for them to enjoy their food. Let their children be miserable with rice cakes. That's how we feel about grace. Because that's what this is. Beloved, that I'm here is insane. That lightning isn't coming through the ceiling right now and frying me to a crisp for having the gall to talk about Jesus when I am who I am and was what I was. All the churches in this world is a body of sinners who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so they are saints at the same time. Or we would still be dead and blind and lost, pursuing our own passions, walking in the way of Satan, and following our own desires. And so God has left grace in the world as his message through the church, through its recipients, right? That's his missionaries, the recipients of his grace. So if they lose sight of what grace is, the mission goes wonky. We are beggars to whom God gives bread. We are not achievers who had better sense than the other guy when we heard the good news. God just hasn't awakened them yet. That's the difference. We don't maintain God's... The only way into God's good graces is the good grace of God. Now, the Spirit has enlightened our hearts with the wisdom we need. Notice that in the first eight verses... The Spirit through the Word has done exactly what Paul prayed it would do in 15 through 23. We've been enlightened with truth from above. Our hearts have been filled with the wisdom we need now to understand properly the place and purpose of good works in the life of a Christian because they are set and have to be framed as such, completely set apart from how you are saved and whether we receive God's grace and blessing or can ever be confident of His presence with us. Look in verse 10. For we are His workmanship. For, because this is, again, because of grace, in grace we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Again, there we are. Again, that's where we're found. In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, the church is not the result or the product of our works. The church is not our workmanship. The church is God's workmanship. He's prepared these things beforehand so that we should walk in them. Now, interestingly enough, just the word for in here, that, that last phrase that we should walk in them, that form of the word in is used 11 other times in the New Testament, 10 other times in the New Testament. This is the only time it's translated in and not upon. 
which is just weird. Ten of the eleven times this form of the word in is upon. Here it's in. It's very interesting. It's not that there's, you know, the, the Bible, now you, now you have to doubt the Bible and there's this huge difference of meaning. There is a difference in how we read it between in and upon. So imagine if, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk upon them. There is textual merit to say that. What's the difference? Upon does better service to the fact that these are works that were prepared beforehand. Right? That, that's how you, if, if they're there, you'd walk upon them. They're already done, right? In tends to make us think that they're put out in front of us somewhere to find. There's this chest of, of uh, somewhere filled with a list of good works with each believer's name on it, and we have to find that list and then do the things on that list upon, I think is better because it does what the rest of the chapter has been doing. It, it puts the focus on grace and God's work in Christ. But, whether we, whether we go within or upon, the first thing we need to know when we come to verse 10 is that it is not a qualification of grace. And that's what we'll immediately do. Haha, ha, see? We are supposed to do stuff. Who said we weren't? Just, God is not saying at the end of this beautiful thing, but, you know, just so you don't think too much of grace, let's make sure we're doing stuff. That's not the point here. The point here in verse 10 is that even our good works are the product of grace. Our salvation and our works are all of grace. Beloved, when are these or where are these works? They're in Christ. Remember what we've read so far in context. We've been made alive with him, raised with him, seated with him in Christ in verses five and six. So that we will be shown the extent of His grace in Christ in verse 7. Now we read that we've also been created in Him for something. So verses 1 through 10 tell us all the things that are ours. Our belief and our works are ours by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. Including all of our good works. We walk upon the works of Christ. They were prepared beforehand. Christ did them so that you and I would walk upon them rather than walk as we were in verse 1 in trespasses and sins. Or verse 2, we are his body. Remember, chapter 1, verse 22, this teaching in 2, 1 through 10 flows out of the fact that we are his body. The, the thought is so closely connected that chapter 2, verse 1 starts with the word and because the, the, the passage goes together. Right? This isn't talking about anything to do with salvation. That's been covered. Nor is this God making sure we don't think too highly of grace by saying, there's still work for you to do now. No, notice the wording. This is a promise. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is talking about what the church, this is talking about the church being the body of Christ in the world. That's what verse 10 is about. These are the church's works as God's redeemed people. We do the works of Christ. Our lives as His body are living, walking proclamations of what He has done. We know what these works are. We see them in the Bible. They've been done. They've been laid out beforehand. Just like everything else about our salvation was. So we're being told here that the Christian life is learning to step in His footprints. Not to create our own. Again, 
Beloved, this is not, am I playing games with the passage? Verse 10 is not an imperative. It's not a command. It's an indicative. It's a statement of what is and will be true. Our works are His workmanship in us. Christ is the head. We are the body. So, by grace we have been saved and remain saved through faith. All faith is, is the means by which God applies His grace to us. He creates something in us that isn't there, which is how Paul described creation in 2 Corinthians 4. For the God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What was there in the beginning? Void. Nothing. He spoke and there was. That is how salvation works. From start to finish. That's why Paul framed it in those words. When God created out of nothing, he did it that way to sh- because his plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things by grace in his son. So the way he created also reflects his plan. I'm going to do everything out of nothing in you by my grace. Praise him. We have believed because he created faith in us. We didn't have it. He gave it. That's what the church is. And we have to start there. It's, it's not semantics. To fulfill His plan for history, to unite all things in His Son, God brings us into the one body of Christ by grace and grace alone. Beloved, grace found us. Grace saved us. Grace keeps us. Grace builds the church. Grace holds the church together. It is God's will and plan for His church to live and die by grace. So all sinners are invited. Whether we feel like God loves us or not.